I'm Ludwig Lopate. Every four years, American voters choose the most powerful person on earth through a system that began some 240 years ago. A number of those 45 presidents have turned out to be a lot better than others. In his latest book, Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World, political scientist Gautam Mukunda suggests the ways we should evaluate a presidential candidate and proposes an objective and tested method to assess whether they will succeed or fail if they win the White House. His book is published by the University of California Press and brings Gautam Mukunda a research fellow at the Harvard School Center for Public Leadership, to our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Leonard. It's a pleasure to be here. The Electoral College was the founder's mechanism for ensuring that only the best could be president. (laughs) That that process doesn't seem to have worked well every time. Well, it's worth saying that the the process that the founders designed designed has never happened, right? So, Mm -hmm. So it literally not once in the entire history of the United States has their intention where the the members of the Electoral College would sort of get together in a room and have some sort of learned debate about who the best president of the United, of the United States would be. Um, that just never happened. Not not even in 1789 when the when, when they themselves were running the process. Um, so, you know, the United States has had presidents who any country would be incredibly jealous of and presidents who any country would probably say, you know, we could do better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever the process is, it's not what they meant it to be. So can we do something to improve it or should we try to institute a whole new system? Well, uh, so I certainly don't think we should try to institute a whole new system. It is, you know, it's it's we spent a lot of time criticizing the U.S. government, and I would be happy to join in on that. There are lots of ways in which I think it should do better. But it's it's important not to forget that the overwhelming story of 220 years of American history is success, not failure. Obviously not success for everyone. Right. We've failed to deliver for a lot of Americans a lot of the time. But. Overall, the United States has gone from, you know, 13 colonies sort of hanging onto the edge of the Atlantic by the skin, by the skin of their teeth to the most pow- richest and most powerful nation in human history in 220 years, which over the space of human history is the blink of an eye. Um, a system that can deliver that to you is not one to discard lightly. So I do think there are lots of ways we could tweak it to make it better. And you suggest doing a better job of evaluating the candidates. Isn't that easier said than done? <laughs> so it is absolutely positively easier said than done. Um, and I think but I think that there are ways that that we can do better precisely because we have so much information about candidates nowadays that we never had before. And if we apply that intelligently, if we sort of look through it, look through, look at candidates the way we model them in my book, we actually can do a very good job of predicting who will succeed and who will fail. There are there's objective and tested methods that we can use to assess whether they'll succeed or fail if they. There are. Um, I I will put in a plug and say you know you you should you should read my book and judge for yourself if I if it's but there are yes no there absolutely are, and we can do that by looking at that and looking in a number of different ways. And the key the thing that differentiates sort of my, my attempts at that with from previous ones, is that we need to understand that there are actually two types of presidents. Just as more broadly, there are two types of leaders. And I refer to them as filtered and unfiltered. So most leaders in most organizations are are filtered. And what that means is they're people who have come up through the process, right? So they've been evaluated, they've been tested, they've been examined. The organization knows everything there is to know about them before it gives them the top job. 
And the, that's unf- how most- the unfiltered ones are outsiders who take power without the understanding or support of traditional elites? That's right. That's exactly right. That's the distinction. And what you see is the filtered leaders tend to be competent but not special, right? Because they've been so evaluated, they kind of, you know, they know how the system works and they know how to get it to do what they want it to do. But they have been chosen to do what the system wants. So they're roughly interchangeable. You could you could replace them with someone else and get yeah, pretty close to the same outcome. When you're thinking presidents of the United States, think, say, someone like George H.W. Bush. Competent, but not memorable. Um, unfiltered leaders are very different because they haven't been evaluated because they are so, so because they are, they are, they have a, they are so different from any else who, anyone else who might possibly could have had the job. They will make choices that are unique that no one else would have made. And what we know about choices that no one else would make is they're really high variance. They tend to be either really successful or a total disaster. Unfiltered leaders are very bore, are very rarely boring. You note that almost one half of all the presidents were unfiltered. That's right. The United States is among major countries. The United States is completely unique in this, right? If you compare us to say Britain, so the so up until you know up until recently, I don't know what the numbers are for Rishi Sunak and Liz Trust, but up until recently, the least filtered, the least experienced prime minister in modern British history, so going back to 1832, was John Major, who mm. I'm guessing nobody even remembers, right? So John Major was in parliament for 13 years before he became prime minister. And by British standards, that is insanely low. But to put that in perspective, that would put him in the upper quarter of American presidents. Well, Theodore Roosevelt is generally rated among the top five presidents, but he was an unfiltered president. He was extremely unfiltered. Um, so TR is one of my favorites, and that was uh, that might have been my favorite chapter of the book to mm. write because he is so unique. I mean, I say TR's charisma was so towering that it grabs you across even across the page and a century. You know, you didn't you don't even have to meet him to be struck by the force of his personality. Uh, or just the energy of his life. I said, just reading about him is tiring. I can't imagine what it was like, you know, living with him. But um, but so TR, when you look at how TR became president, so he was vice president of the United States, and the, and William McKinley was assassinated, and that's how he became president. But the reason he was vice president was because he had been an extraordinarily successful reformist governor of New York. And the Republican Party elites who were, you know, making lots of money off the sort of corruption that his reforms were battling wanted to get rid of him. But he was too powerful. He was too popular to sort of lose an election. And so over his own protests, they made him vice president because they said, you know, the vice president, once you become vice president, no one will ever hear you from you again. You know, you'll just vanish. Mm. And uh, and he did not want to be vice president, but he got the job. And then when McKinley was assassinated, suddenly he was president of the United States. In fact, the greatest of all Republican Party bosses of that era, a man named Mark Hanna, when he when TR became vice president, said, you know, do not do this. That maniac is only between there's only one heartbeat heartbeat between that maniac and the White House. And that is exactly what happened. But once he was in office, TR did you know exactly what they were afraid he would do. He led exactly the reforms that he had pushed in New York on a national scale. It is difficult to overstate TR's impact. He essentially invented the modern presidency. And uniquely of the great presidents, he did all of this without some sort of great foreign policy achievement or foreign policy crisis, right? He didn't win. He didn't face World War I or World War II or the Great Depression like Franklin Roosevelt or the Civil War. 
like like Abraham Lincoln. He just used the presidency in ways no president ever had before to change American life for the better. You say Harry Truman is one of the the presidents who represents the system at its best. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's generally been ranked among the top ten presidents. Could that have been predicted by his past? Was he filtered or unfiltered? So he was very much filtered. Harry Truman is the—and he shares with Gerald Ford this distinction—the closest the United States will ever get to a parliamentary system. Because when Harry Truman was made vice president of the United States, the leaders of the Democratic Party who picked him for for that job knew that Franklin Roosevelt was not going to live out his term. So they knew that they weren't just picking the next vice president of the United States. They knew they were picking the next president of the United States. And they wanted the person who they were confident would do that job successfully. And they picked Harry Truman. So the journalists of journalists in, in the Washington held a poll during uh, about about a year, two years earlier, where they asked of all of the people in Washington, Franklin Roosevelt and George Marshall excluded, who was the person who did the who contributed the most to the American war effort? And Harry Truman was the winner. Right, because Harry, we sort of remember him as this, you know, this haberdasher because he constructed this imagery. Of this, he failed you know, as a haberdasher. Yeah, that's right. I would have thought that was a warning right? sign. <laughs> yeah, we, we were met. We, we sort of, he constructed this wonderful image of himself as the everyman. But what the Truman Commission actually did was incredibly effectively and ruthlessly investigate waste and corruption in wartime procurement, saving the United States billions of dollars and thousands of lives. And so he had demonstrated just how capable he was when they picked him. Well, corruption may have gotten him the job, but uh, corruption in his administration became a major campaign issue in 52, and he decided not to run for re-election. That's right. And and so, I mean, again, the, the contrast between the public image of Harry Truman and the private one is gargantuan, right? Um, the public image that we, we, we still, I believed this story until I did the research for this book, that Harry Truman was this model of the poverty-stricken president who, you know, we, we created a pension for presidents because Truman refused to refused to capitalize on the presidency to make an income and he lived in poverty. None of that is true. Um, in fact, Harry Truman, like pretty clearly embezzled non-trivial amounts of money. He pocketed his expense reimbursement as president of the United States and did not pay taxes on it. Um, and so, in fact, right, this so, so Truman's ability to construct this image is remarkable. And so, you know, I'm not a defender of corruption. Corruption is really bad. But the corruption that we're talking about for Truman was, you know, in the grand scheme of things, penny ante stuff, right? He didn't pay taxes on his on on his expense reimbursements. He should have. Mm. But he also created NATO and got the Marshall Plan passed. If that's the trade-off, I can live with it. And I think most of us could. So in, in many of these cases, there's a trade-off. So there's, I mean, no one, you know, religious leaders and possibly Abraham Lincoln accepted is perfect, right? Like, um, like, like there's always a trade-off. And we, well, we, you are trying to pick the person who will do the best job. So a phrase I often, I, I often, I've heard, and I love it so much, I quote it all the time, is that casting a vote is not a love letter. You are not falling in love with someone who is perfect. A vote is a chess move, right? It is a thing that you do to get to a world in which the, the, the get to the world in which you want to live. And so, you know, I and I would, I would say everybody, you should have no problems voting for someone who is not your perfect candidate. You just want to vote for someone who you think will do the best job of the options available to you. And that was Harry Truman in 1944. Well, Truman was succeeded by Eisenhower, who's also ranked among the top 10 presidents of all time. 
but there's a trade-off there, too. Didn't he also get the United States involved in the war in Vietnam? So, uh, so no, um, not exactly. Um, Truman, so I, I, so I would say is his far more Eisenhower's successors than Eisenhower got us in Vietnam. In fact, Eisenhower was pretty clear that he did not want to fight a war in Asia or anything like that. When the French asked him to bail them out of Dien Bien Phu, um, he was like, absolutely not. We're not doing that. Are, are you in, are you crazy? Basically. Um, so Eisenhower is very interesting in that he, because of his unique stature, as in the American mind, the man who beat Hitler was able to do things that no other president could do. So one, right, the the when Eisenhower became the Republican nominee, the Republican Party without Eisenhower was actually pretty committed to an isolationist stance. Senator Robert Taft. Robert was, Taft, that's was right, the, Mr. Uh, Republican. Was his chief opponent. Yeah, and Eisenhower ran to stop Robert Taft from becoming president, right? He said, because if Taft runs, then the United States will withdraw from the Western alliance and, and the, you know, the world will go to hell. And so I have to stop it. I have to save the world one more time. And so he ran and then he committed the Republican Party to an extent, you know, to something that lasted plus or minus for 40 years to an internationalist stance. And so in doing that, but at the same time, we forget what when Eisenhower was president of the United States. He did massive cuts in the defense budget. He used his stature as the man who beat Hitler to say, we do not need to spend enormous amounts on defense. That is pointless. And so we are not going to do it. In fact, his greatest, the greatest speech he ever gave without question was the one he gave where he talked about why he did this. And he says, you know, beautifully that every bomber we build, he said, for, for what we spend to build that bomber, we could have built 10 schools or 100 schools, right? He says, every single bomb plane, every single gun, every single bullet, we are stealing from our future. And so we shouldn't. And so we, you know, we should minimize that. And he talked now, about. The only guys in and he talked against the use of nuclear weapons. Yes. So, so one of his greatest achievements is Eisenhower, more than any other single person, is responsible for the establishment of the nuclear taboo. Right. So nuclear weapons have been used twice, and not a single time since 1945. And more than any person, that was Eisenhower. In fact, in Dien Bien Phu, the Joint Chiefs came to him and said, "We should use nuclear weapons to rescue the French." And he said, you know, are you out of your mind? We are not using these horrible weapons on Asians again, right? But like, you must be crazy. He's literally said that you must be crazy. We are not doing this. We should send um, you a book to Vladimir Putin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One could only hope that uh, if Vladimir Putin had 1% of the wisdom of Dwight Eisenhower, well, he would not be in Ukraine in the first place. Um, but yeah, Eisenhower, I, I call unfiltered because when he ran for president in 1952, people said accurately that the only question was, was he going to be Dwight Eisenhower Republican president or Dwight Eisenhower Democratic president? Mm. But if he wanted to be president, he was going to be president. And that is not filtration in any meaningful sense. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI is Gautam Mukunda. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Uh, Gautam Mukunda. Gautam. G-A-U-T-A-M. That's Mukunda. Right. His uh, latest book, Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World, is published by the University of California Press. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Now, you devote uh, a chapter to James Buchanan. Wasn't he exceptionally well qualified for the job? He was. Um, he was, in fact, until the election of President Biden, the most filtered person ever to be elected president. And so the biggest intellectual puzzle of my book was trying to understand how this supremely well-qualified person could fail so spectacularly. And the answer is 
Biden is is Buchanan was picked to do what the system wanted. But what the system wanted was we now recognize and many people recognized at the time disastrous. And so what had happened is in the 1850s the the Democratic Party had cho had chosen to nominate candidates a, they had a two-thirds rule where you had to get two-thirds of the delegates in order to get the nomination. And that made it mathematically impossible to get the nomination without Southern support. This right, this gave the Southerners a stranglehold on the, on the Democratic Party nomination and therefore on the presidency. And they used that very aggressively to constantly increase their demands on the political system. And they said that, you know, if you don't, we will break the system. And so they would and they would said that they could only you could only ever nominate someone who was known as a doe face. Right. That someone is a, is a northern man with southern principles, someone who would give the South everything it could ask for, no matter how unreasonable. And so southern demands had escalated to the point we sort of, you know, we've allowed our historical memory on this to lapse, which we should never have done. But when Thomas Jefferson right, wrote the De Declaration of Independence, he concluded included a long section criticizing slavery, even though he owned slaves. That's that's hypocritical. It is not in any way excuse Jefferson for owning slaves, but at least he recognized that it was wrong. And he called for the end of slavery that's, within time, of course. Within time, yes. Yeah. You know, conveniently After when it was no died. longer a problem for him. Yeah, right. Yeah. Some, somebody else should deal with this, but at least he said someone should deal with it. By the 1850s, the mainstream position in the South was what we, it was referred to as the as the pro-slavery position. That is, they, they said that it's not that we should be ashamed of slavery. We are proud of slavery. You in the North should be ashamed that you don't have slavery and that we will not countenance any possible disagreement with slavery, right? We have sort of managed to forget that the South was a police state, not just to brutally oppress its blacks, but also to brutally oppress anyone who complained mm about slavery, right? Where, you know, freedom of the press, freedom of the speech, were all suspended on the subject of slavery. And so when the South used this pro-slavery, used their power to push this pro-slavery agenda, naturally, the, you know, people in the North, even people who didn't really have a problem with slavery, objected to this. And so Buchanan pushed this agenda in ways that were that were completely to many most northerners unacceptable. Do you think he it's because he was such an experienced politician that he was trying to play all sides against the middle? I don't think he was trying to play all sides against the middle. He was trying to play the southern side, mm. uh, um, and he, they picked him because his incredible, his vast experience as a politician revealed that he was a person who would play the southern side. Well, the political time is a factor in many of these situations, as it is very much today. Absolutely. So there is nothing, I mean, um, I, when I when I teach leadership to students, um, I always tell them that there's a cheat code, right? Like like any question I answer, that, that you can always start by saying, you can always get the right, any question I ask, you can always start the right answer by saying, well, it depends on the context. Um, everything is always about context, and you cannot separate any leader from the context they're in, which is why... Picking, picking leaders, picking presidents, say is is not is is like it's like dating. It is not a it's not a ranking problem. It's a matching problem, hmm. right? So what that means is you are not trying to taking all the people and ranking them from best best to worst and then picking the best person. So teenagers, right? Teenagers want to date a supermodel. But when you've grown up a little bit, you realize that what you want is to date not some arbitrary vision of who the best person is. You want to you want to be with the person who's right for you.
which is may not be is. So when you are picking leaders, what you're thinking about is not is some ab, some you know abstract qualification who has the best leadership abilities. You want to pick the person who the, who's the right person for the situation you are in. And when the situation changes, it might be a different. You might need a different person too. So how responsible was James Buchanan's performance in the White House for Abraham Lincoln's victory in the next election? So uh, I mean, so I would say overwhelmingly so in the sense that. That James Buchanan, because of his because of his incredible favoritism to the South and the way he slanted towards the South in every way, including let's just note right when Southern terrorists were in Kansas, essentially starting the Civil War in the era we call leading Kansas, favoring those in, the, the favoring those terrorists massively, um, he split the Democratic Party. So he essentially the 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 United States had essentially going into the 1850s only two major national institutions. Right, the Baptist Church and the Democratic Party. The Baptist Church split. Southern ba the Southern Baptist denomination was created over slavery. So then we had one national institution, the Democratic Party, that was holding us together, and Buchanan split that. And so without that, without that, without the Democratic Party fracturing in that way, it's hard to see how Abraham Lincoln I, I was, after all. An extraordinarily obscure figure when he got the Republican nomination. Although I always remind people that. Um, when Lincoln got the nominate, Republican nomination, he was so obscure that the New York Times was unable to spell his name correctly. <laughs> um, and, it doesn't um, look like the hardest name to to spell, but okay. Yeah, no, they, they referred to him as Abram, A B R A M, oh. Abram Lincoln, apparently. Um, right. So this is this is not a major figure, um, and he, if, if without a split Democratic Party, it's kind of hard to imagine how he would win. But he also had. A, uh, his previous record, the things that uh, positions he had taken, don't really prepare us for what he finally winds up doing in the White House. To some degree, his being forced by, uh, well, the beginning of the Civil War. So partly that, and but the 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 other side is is what record, right? Abraham Lincoln's total time in political office, in national level political office, before he became president of the United States was one unsuccessful term in Congress. So he, when he ran for the presidency, and I, and I, sp I spent a chapter on this in my first book, uh, I am Lincoln-obsessed, so I can never miss a chance to talk about Abraham Lincoln. Um, when he ran for the presidency, the way he got the Republican nomination was his team portrayed him as the least anti-slavery Republican, and therefore the one most likely to appeal to moderates. Now, he was in reality nothing of the sort. He had said in private correspondence, right, I hate slavery, right? If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. But that was in private correspondence. In public, he could be whatever he wanted to be, and that was what he and that was how he got the nomination. You suggest that Andrew Johnson set civil rights back by a century. Could that have been predicted by his record before he became president? Yeah, and no one right no one wanted Andrew Johnson to be president. That was not anyone's intent. I wouldn't um, have voted for him. No, God, no. Um, and, you know, Lincoln didn't pick him to be the next president. Obviously, you know, Lincoln certainly didn't expect to be assassinated. He was he became the Republican nominee for vice president because he was the only Southern senator who did not leave the union with his state. Right. He stuck it out when no one else did, for which, you know, we should give him credit. It's maybe the only thing we should give him credit for, but we should give him credit for that. Um, and so Lincoln, when at the time the nomination was made, was in desperate political straits picked Andrew Johnson in the hope that that he would pull enough moderate voters in 
to get Lincoln reelected. Now, of course, in the inter- after that happened, Sherman took Atlanta, Farragut took Mobile Bay, and Lincoln's political form, political status changed immensely. So, in fact, he did not need Johnson to win the election, but there was no way to know that at the time. But when Lincoln was assassinated, you elevate this guy from Tennessee to become the president of the United States, and Andrew Johnson had grown up dirt poor in the South with a powerful sort of envy and antipathy towards the Southern planter class. Mm. And that was what drove him to stay with the Union, because he blamed, correctly, the planters for secession. And so he hated them so much that he would not do anything that they did. But once the South was back in the Union, once the South had been defeated, those same planters essentially flattered him into adopting their positions, where he he spent his presidency doing everything he possibly could to restore the South's social order to exactly what it was before the Civil War. Um, and this is the greatest catastrophe. And I, said, I really, I really believe this. This is the single greatest catastrophe in American history, and nothing else comes close. Right? The United States had black senators elected in 1875, and then the next one didn't come. It was from Massachusetts almost a century later. Civil rights in the United States were much more advanced in 1867 than they were in 1957. And that is because of Andrew Johnson. When Johnson became president, the South, uh, histori- so um, his, um, uh, historians who, who have looked at this de- demonstrate overwhelmingly, right, that, um, that the South was ready to accept civil rights for blacks. The Civil War had been so devastating that, they, that their defeat had been so total, they were like, we, we cannot fight any longer. We're going to have to concede to this thing that we hate. But Johnson gave them the opportunity. They realized that even though they had lost the war, they could win the peace. And that is what they did. He gave them, you know, the the 90 year, more than that, more than a century of absolute uncompromising opposition on the part of Southern whites to any form of civil rights for blacks. None of that would have happened without Andrew Johnson. It was exacerbated years later by Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Now, he was a Southerner. Uh, and couldn't what he did, which included uh, showing um, a, uh, a pro-slavery film in the White House, the birth of the nation, couldn't that have been predicted simply by looking at his history? So, so the answer is yes, with the benefit of hindsight, but not at the time. So um, Wilson is, you know, and in, in, I wrote, I also wrote a chapter on Wilson in my first book, and I mm-hmm. sort of. It is difficult to overstate my dislike for Woodrow Wilson, who I find to be, you know, sort of among the most appalling of all American presidents on a personal level. Um, but so in his Well, you like Teddy cult- Roosevelt, and they were serious <laughs> rivals. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible not to like Teddy Roosevelt. I say he's just, you know, I mean, if your kids have a teddy bear, the teddy bear is named <laughs> after Teddy Roosevelt, right? Yeah. Um, um, so what I would say is in Wilson's case— if you have access to his private beliefs and things like that, then you can see just what a horrific racist he actually was. But contemporaries of him did not, re- I mean, they got hints of it, but he was quite skilled at explaining it away. And in fact, one of the crucial components of his victory in 1912 was black voters who he basically said, no, no, I'm on your side. I'm not, I, even though I'm from Virginia, I, I'm, and then of course it was, it was all a lie. He was lying to them. And once he became, once he became president, he did a great deal to reverse civil rights. He resegregated the federal government. I mean, all, all of these things that we know that he did, the awful things that he did. Um, but he created this facade. And this is the danger of unfiltered candidates. And Woodrow Wilson was very much an unfiltered candidate. He, his only time in elected office was two years as governor of New Jersey, is they are able to create facades of telling people this is what, you know, 
this is I, I am what you want me to be. But when you and they have power, they can be who they actually are. And in Woodrow and Theodore Roosevelt's case, the person who he actually was was pretty great. In Woodrow Wilson's case, the per, the person he actually was was pretty awful, and we suffered for that. And this is why un, electing unfiltered candidates is so risky. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying my conversation with Gautam Kunda. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give, and then the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to leadership expert and political scientist Gautam Mukunda, whose book, Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World, is uh, published by the University of California Press. Now, you actually... (laughs) Use the decisions we make when we're buying a car as an analogy here. (laughs) So that's right. Um, What I say is that, uh, as you can imagine, I was thinking about buying a car myself when I wrote this, so it was top of mind. Um, It's a way to understand the difference between filtered and unfiltered presidents. Uh, Not just that, filtered and unfiltered leaders of all kinds. Uh, All this applies to people so far beyond the presidency. So... The difference between one SUV and another SUV in the same same price point is quite small. You agonize over which one you're going to pick. The car companies who are selling them to you agonize over which one you're going to pick. But in reality, at roughly the same price point, a year later, there will be no real difference in your life. The marginal difference will be very small. That's a filtered choice. If you're choosing between you know an SUV and a Porsche 911, the difference in your life will likely be quite large. So you think of the 911 as the unfiltered choice, something very, very different that would have very, very different outcomes for you. And how does that work in the case of, of politicians? Uh, are you suggesting that in most cases uh, the the choice is very lim- is of limited difference? So when you're choosing between filtered candidates, I'd say the, the effects of which filtered candidate you pick are going to be relatively small. And I just know, I'm thinking that of is Herschel not, Walker, for example. Yeah, Herschel Walker would be a very unfiltered senator candidate, right. Um, uh, so, and, you know, that is usually a good thing, right? So when, when, when executives ask me, how do I be a high-impact leader, my answer is, well, are you sure you want to be? Um, you know, the Simpsons, the Simpsons is the source of all life wisdom. And Marge Simpson famously, you know, once said that it is true that one person can make a difference, but they usually shouldn't. <laughs> um, it's just easy. There are more ways to fail than there are to succeed. And it's easier as a leader to fail than it is to succeed. If you as a leader take a course of action that no one else in the world would agree with you taking, 
Well, the odds are the reason for no one would agree with you is because it is a bad decision. Um, very few people would have invaded Ukraine in Vladimir Putin's shoes. And guess what? He was, you know, the, the, the advice they would have given him, don't do this, would have been, it was excellent advice. Um, so that's what I say about, you know, the leaders, having leaders who are low impact isn't the worst thing in the world. Um, another way to think about that is light bulbs, right? So it really matters that you have a good light bulb. But it doesn't matter which good light bulb you have because, you know, you need a light bulb because it is very hard to read in the dark. But you don't care which one you have. That's a filtered that's a filtered leader. Unfiltered leaders are the opposite, where it really, really matters which individual one that you have, either for better or for worse. You say that when it comes down to what you call the paradox of leader selection, the more important people think leadership is, the more effort they'll put into picking their preferred leader. That's right. And, and the more effort they put into picking their preferred leader, the less it matters who they pick in the, in the long run. So in the British system up until so that you know, filters out all outliers, usually not all outliers, but you know, as with any social science theory, you know, it's probably there's there's a probability part here, but it filters out most outliers. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, we I tested this statistically. If you look at presidents of the United States and you assess them by how filtered or unfiltered they are, you find out it is statistically overwhelmingly likely that unfiltered presidents are much, much more likely to be at the top and the bottom of historians rankings or presidential performance. So this actually actually shows up in the data. It's more than just a theory. Um, and, th you know, that shouldn't surprise you. Like, you should believe that the George H.W. Bushes, the Bill Clintons of this world, the, if you've been around the upper levels of the government for that long, you know what you're doing. You're not going to make unforced errors. You're not going to make, you know, like ridiculous mistakes and not, not knowing how, to, how the basics of the government works. But you should also say that someone like that is not going to be Abraham Lincoln. Because if they were likely to do the things that no one else would do, that the system doesn't walk, want, that actually transforms the country, well, that would have been detected and the system would have stopped them from doing it, from getting the job in the first place. You include a table of presidential rankings and Lincoln uh, is ranked number one by C-SPAN, APSA, and MetaRank, but not by Siena. In fact, Siena has him number three. Uh, below Washington and FDR. So uh, this is, there are other reasons, other factors that go into why some people might consider one president a better one than another. So, of course, um, there's huge variation in that. Um, and what, what we find, interestingly, is over time, this variation smooth out. Um, and so the first thing is what I really care about is the top and the bottom of the rankings, right? So what I'm interested in is where do great presidents come from and where does that disaster? Well, if you look at the top from. 10 in all of these rankings, they're pretty much the same presidents. Yes. They're just not necessarily in the same place. That's right. The top 10 are basically identical and the bottom 10 are basically identical. And in fact, one of the criticisms of these rankings that's often made is, well, historians are a liberal bunch, which is true. I have a bunch of historian friends and they're mostly pretty far to the left. Um, and so conservative historians once got together and said, well, look, let's do these rankings as conservatives and rank conservatives and rank presidents as conservatives wouldn't see. And, you know, we'll, we'll show how how biased the normal historians are. And they did their rankings and they came out exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Which so group even was political. That? Beg your pardon? Which group was that? Uh, it was a few years ago. So I, I don't remember the mm -hmm. name of it, but it was a collection, of, a very, pretty large collection of conservative historians. And I think that their, their results are also listed in the appendix of the book. 
It is interesting to look at these uh, presidential rankings. Uh, and as uh, we said, the bottom, Buchanan comes in last in all but one of the rankings. He comes in next to last in that group. Uh, uh, Johnson comes in near last in all. Pretty much the same people. Harding. Yeah, Har Harding may be the one who gets a bad rap out of all of them. Um, I, it would not shock me if over the next 25 years, our historical vision of Harding gets reevaluated a little bit. Now, in Indispensable, a book that you published in 2012, didn't you come close to predicting a Trump presidency? Yeah, in a way that to this day just seems sort of odd and unnerving. So I laid out this filtered and unfiltered distinction in Indispensable. That's where it was first first published. Um, and obviously, Donald Trump looks as completely unfiltered as it's possible for a president to be. In fact, he is the first president ever to be elected to, to take the White House with zero days of government experience, mm. right? Literally zero days. That's unprecedented in our history. It's unprecedented, really, in anyone's history. Um, but on top of that, I also said, you know, look, if unfiltered leaders are really great or really awful, is there any way for me to predict which of the two they're going to be? And you have to remember that luck really matters. Luck is a primary component here. But when drilling down beyond luck in Indispensable, published in 2012, 10 years ago, I said, what you need to be worried about is unfiltered candidates who have what I call um, false signals. So they have characteristics that make them look better on a superficial examination than they really are. And the four characteristics that I identified that I thought at the time were likely to be really important in leader selection were first, um, psychological and personality disorders, where the examples I used were narcissism and psychopathy. Because both of these disorders, what they do is when you first meet someone like that, they are extraordinarily impressive on first contact. And after, you know, after an extended period of time with them, you penetrate the narcissistic aura and you're like, wow, this person is actually pretty awful. And what so, presidents would you include in that group? So uh, many presidents have some narcissistic traits. You know, many politicians have narcissistic traits. Um, we have never had anyone who was as more as much of a textbook narcissist mm -hmm. as Donald Trump. Um, I quote a. I quote a uh, psychologist who says that he used to hire actors in, to act out, you know, dialogues in, in skits to show his students what a narcissist looks like. But now he doesn't have to do that. He just shows them video of Donald Trump being interviewed hmm. uh, because it's literally like a textbook. Um, so those two characteristics are um, uh, second. I would the second thing I say is what you you have to you should be thinking about people presidents who have highly simplistic or out of the mainstream ideologies. Right. And so another example of that would be Andrew Johnson, whose whose ideology was that the planter class that he hated and freed blacks were conspiring to oppress poor whites in the South. Right. This is, you know, this is sort of madness, we should say, but he he, he really believed that. So so narcissism, psychopathy as you know, personality disorders out of the mainstream ideologies. Third one is, you know, an extremely incompetent or risk-prone managerial approach, right? So someone who gambles crazily or is just a really bad manager. Um, in terms of really bad manager, I would say both Jimmy Carter and George W. Bush demonstrated that whatever, you know, in Jimmy Carter's case in particular, whatever extraordinary personal virtues he may have had, he simply could not run the government. He did not have that. He did not have those managerial goals. And he wasn't reelected. As a consequence, yes, it wasn't unrelated. Um, and then the last one I'd say is, is what I call unearned advantages, and the most striking of those is inherited wealth, um, where unearned advantages would say is that is that what they allow you to do is build a resume that you do not deserve. 
So we always think of experience. We ask people, what did you learn from your experience? And that's important. Experience is a developmental process. You should learn from your experience. But the other thing experience is, is it is a revelatory process. It lets other people learn about you because of what you did while you got that experience and if you got promoted or not at the end of it. But if you come from a really rich and powerful family, then they're going to arrange that you get promoted to the end of it, whether or not you actually did a good job. And so coming having these unearned advantages obscures the revelatory part of exp uh, of experience and makes it much harder to judge your real underlying capabilities. How uh, accurate is the uh, assessment of the voters? For example, Trump is one of five presidents who were elected despite losing the popular vote. And uh, the others were John Quincy Adams, Rutherford B. Hayes, Benjamin Harrison, George W. Bush, none of whom are generally ranked among the best presidents. Yeah, it is pretty striking that every time the Electoral College has chosen someone who did not win the popular vote, uh, it's, it's, it has generally worked out, you know, for various values of badly. Uh, and what I would say is the voters are, you know, it, it's so easy for people to sort of sort of pay, sort of criticize the voters. But actually, my judgment is the voters in American history have done a pretty good job. Like like when they when they pick when the majority of them vote one way, it, it works out pretty well. It's, it's when the system fails them that we have real disasters. Um, that being said, um, what I would say is in this book, and this is why in the book I focus on the primaries, is the way the political system is now. Um the essentially the partisanship is so strong that if you have if you are the nominee of a major party, you've got a pretty good shot at winning, which is why I published columns in 2016, early 2016, saying Republic Democrats who want Trump to be the Republican nominee are wrong because you think if he's the Republican nominee, we will definitely win. But that's not how things work now. Actually, if he's the Republican nominee, he's got a very good shot and he won. Um, so but. Again, we're where seeing can, that we're seeing that in a number of local elections where yes. some of the uh, candidates seem to be totally outrageous and yet uh, may very well win. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine someone less qualified for the Senate than Herschel Walker, and yet he is running dead even in his race. And so that's that is exactly right. Partisanship is that strong. So where we really need filtering to take place, where we really really need to evaluate candidates, is in the primaries. Or it is, you know, it is, it is responsible on all of us and it is the responsibility of political elites to make sure that the nomination, anybody who gets the nomination of a major party can do the job. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Gautam Mukunda. His latest book, Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World, published by the University of California Press. You say a question you get asked a lot is, do individual leaders actually matter? Obviously, from this conversation, the, the answer, I guess, would be you, you feel it does. Uh, and, well, and your subtitle would suggest that as well, how to make well, the most consequential decision in the world. My answer would be sometimes, oh. right? It matters when unfiltered leaders matter a lot. Filtered leaders tend not to matter very much at all. A number of the unfiltered uh, leaders uh, became presidents, won elections because of random events like th third-party candidates, terrorist attacks, assassination attempts. Sometimes all of those in the same election cycle. Uh-huh. So yeah, that, that's, that's right. And this is, again, why the nomination process is so important. 
because it's easy for we, we have had a long string up, up until 2016, I guess, of relatively normal election cycles. And so we sort of have convinced ourselves that these are all the product of you know plugging in the numbers on economic growth. And that tells you what happens. But actually, elections are chaos and confusion. Right. When you when you, for this book, I had to study basically every election in American history. And what you find out is they are a lot crazier than we think they are when we when we look at the broad scope of history. And so you want to make sure that everybody who's got a shot at getting the brass ring is someone you would be comfortable holding it because it's very hard to guess who's going to win, who's going to come out a winner. Part of the problem for me is that when I look at uh, the history of our presidencies, um, there are presidents who did good things and did bad things as far as I'm concerned. And I'm not sure where I, I would ultimately rank them. Yeah, I mean, so what I say is that's absolutely true. Is there's a there's a mixture. Very of, few seem to be perfect. Yeah, and you know we are not we're not in the business of perfect people. Um, so what I say is first is is that over time, most of the really important presidencies come down to a small handful of decisions. Um, Thomas Jefferson was a huge success as president, even though many of his individual decisions, for example, the embargo he levied on Europe, were disastrous. Because at the end of the day, none of that matters compared to making the Louisiana Purchase. If you double the size of the United States at trivial cost, people are going to look back and say that was a really successful presidency, pretty much no matter what else you did, right? Um, and so this is the, the so no one's perfect. There are lots of pluses and minuses. You can even say so. Harry Truman thought that the most important decision of his presidency, and he thought it was not close, was the decision to enter the Korean War. Now, I agree with him in that assessment. I think the decision to enter the Korean War was the most important decision of his presidency. But think about what that says. That says that the decision to drop two nuclear bombs on Japan, about as important a decision as you can possibly imagine a human being making, was not even number one on the list of one presidency in the choices that he had to make. <laughs> so it's just a matter of whether I consider dropping a bomb more important uh, I mean, the, the the dropping of the bomb, in theory, uh, led to the end of World War II uh, against uh, an opponent who had uh, attacked us initially. But still, uh, it's just a horrifying thing. And even today, when we consider the possibility of, of uh, a nuclear weapon being used in in Ukraine, it's it's kind of scary and and horrifying. Well, yeah, the, the, I mean, the power of nuclear weapons is so vast that I think we have allowed ourselves to forget that. So, you know, during the during the 80s, when I was a kid, right, people would watch movies about the, about a nuclear war and the thing at, you know, with the world after a nuclear war. And it would be horrifying beyond words and people would have nightmares about it. And, it's like, and that is that is an appropriate response to nuclear weapons. You should have nightmares about them. They are that bad. And so what we forget when we – the presidency is the president of the United States is one of two people who can end human civilization. Right now, Joe Biden can wake up or you know, I guess it's, it's the afternoon. So he can go, to, go into the office and turn to the guy holding the football and say, I would like to launch the missiles. Hmm. Right? And 30 – you know, those missiles are going to fly. The United States and, the, and Russia have the ability to end human civilization – and both of us have trusted that power to the hand. We put it in the hands of a single individual. 
So one of the I would suggest reforms to the way we choose presidents, but I also suggest reforms to the powers of the presidency. And maybe the most critical of those is we should take away the ability to launch a unilateral nuclear first strike from the president. From the president, it, it is given the enormous power of the American military. Right, the president has lots of options before that. Ask up to the book. We can't see Congress doing that. Um, you know, they're actually so. Um, Senator Markey, who is my um my Congress my senator, has um has actually issued put out a bill proposing that. Um, I think there is more of a chance of that than you would think. Um, but whether or not there is a chance of it, I think it is really important that we do it because again, right? What's what are the odds that you would assess that a president could do this? Right. That the, what now, suppose you think. It is a one in a thousand chance that we could ever elect a president who, for whatever reason, right, does this does this horrible thing without, you know, without not as a counter strike, but as a first strike. So I'd say is one, if you think it's one in a thousand, I was pointing out we have audio tape of Richard Nixon getting drunk and ordering airstrikes. Hmm. Right. So like 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 that's not a matter of historical debut. We dispute. We actually have it on tape of him doing that. So well, it's he, maybe not as crazy as you might think. And he's not ranked as one of the greatest presidents. No, he time. is not. We but, only have know, a couple of minutes left. Yeah. Is it possible to come up with an objective method to assess whether a candidate will succeed or fail if they win the White House? How important are factors like political science, psychology, organizational behavior, economics? So very important. Um, and that integrating all of those different factors is why I wrote this book, because I, I felt that I was in a unique position to do so. I am. I am trained as a political scientist. My PhD is in political science. But I've also I also spent seven years on the faculty of Harvard Business School in the organizational behavior department and was always able to integrate learnings from organizational behavior, from business, from management, from economics, from psychology and political science and to create this one framework. And I, you know, I, I hope your I hope your listeners will read the book and judge for themselves. But I think that the evidence in the book is very clear that it is possible to create this framework if we judge presidents by whether they're filtered or unfiltered, and we evaluate and we evaluate these candidates who are filtered or unfiltered, and we evaluate them differently. Right? With filtered presidents, we want to know what does the political system think of them, because the people who are in the upper reaches of the government have better information than we do about their capabilities. For unfiltered presidents, presidential candidates, right? We want to know: Do they have these personality and psychological disorders? Do they have the sort of the breadth of interests and creativity and knowledge that would make them a successful leader under a wide variety of different circumstances? Is Ron DeSantis have, yeah. filtered or an unfiltered potential candidate? That's right. So, the filtered and unfiltered candidates, and we should understand that we evaluate filtered and unfiltered candidates differently. I was wondering whether Ron DeSantis would be considered filtered or unfiltered. Oh, I'm sorry. I misheard your question. Um, so Ron DeSantis, um, by, if he governor. ran in 2024, would be a two-term governor of Florida. So I would describe him as a filtered candidate. We would know exactly what we were getting if we elected him. Looking at all of the potential candidates right now, I'm really scared. Uh, but that's a whole other matter, uh, especially since, um, as you point out, it winds up becoming the most consequential decision in the world when we pick a president. My great thanks to you for being on our show. I've been speaking with leadership expert, political scientist, Gautam uh, Makunda, whose uh, book, Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World, is published by the University of California Press. He is, among other things, a research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Center for Public Leadership. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Leonard. It was a pleasure.
And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. The station really is in, uh, has deep financial needs, and we need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content here, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Picking Presidents by Gautam Mukunda. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20, $25, however much you feel comfortable with for, per month. Uh, it allows us to plan for the future and you can keep it going until you decide you don't want to do it anymore. We'll say thank you for anyone who becomes a BA buddy for $10 a month or more with a BAI tote bag. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune into this show regularly, why not let us know that you appreciate what we're doing by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one, the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us uh, tomorrow when my guest will be Michael Meta-Webster discussing his new book, Rescue Effect. We'll see you then. <laughs>